tossing and turning all night like a salad, it's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker and I thought if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. You can't shame yourself sober and you can't punish yourself into change. But similarly, we need to recognize our patterns and be willing to tell the truth. I'm so excited to welcome Laura McCowan, author of the new book, Push Off From Here to the podcast today. Laura and I get into this idea of a blame story and what personal responsibility really means. In this episode, we discuss the chaos that we live in on a daily basis, what personal responsibility means, how to identify your blame story, and how to cope with intense shame in sobriety. 
for the extended episode, including Laura's advice if you are going back and forth because you believe you aren't that bad, then please check out my Living a Sober Powered Life community and you can watch it there. Details are in the show notes. Laura McCowan is the founder of The Luckiest Club, which is an international sobriety support community, and she's the best-selling author of We Are the Luckiest. Her new book, Push Off From Here, The Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety, is all about how to get through sobriety with a modern exploration of addiction. She shares practical advice for achieving sobriety and living a fulfilling life in recovery. You can get more information about her new book in the show notes, and let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm really excited for your book launch and to talk about Push Off From Here and some of the insight. We can't talk about all of the amazing insight, but some of it. Yeah, thank you. I saw your questions that you sent to me beforehand. I was like, these are good questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I was reading and I had notes in my phone for what to talk to you about. And I think the thing that had the biggest impact on me was your analogy about living with roller skates on. I read over that multiple times. I was like, that's so true. And people say that to me a lot. They say, like, once they get sober and they realize how good it is, they look back and they're like, I didn't realize that this was the cause of a lot of the chaos and misery and suffering that I had. And I just love to talk about that roller skate analogy. Well, we all know what it's like to have roller skates on. It feels like unstable and chaotic. And even if you're pretty good at roller skates, it's still really hard. You can't stand there. You have to like it's it's not stable. The genesis of this story, though, dates back to when I was in my early 20s and I was working at this insurance company in Boston and I was always, <laughs> it was a mess, but I was often very hungover. And on a hungover day, I was like cruising around between meetings and I blasted into our workspace. We had like this sort of collective workspace where a few of us sat together and I was shuffling papers around on my desk and looking for something. And I was already late for the next meeting. And this woman who I worked with said in like, there's this really chill voice. She's like, girl, it's like you're always on roller skates. And she didn't even look at me when she was saying it. She just like focused on her computer. She's a designer. I was like, oh, and I was so embarrassed. And uh, I went to the next meeting. I remember sitting there kind of like hot and sweaty and thinking like, fuck her. And but or doesn't everyone feel this way, like a little, you know, out of control and kind of running late and trying to juggle too much. But then 10 years later, I'm working at an advertising agency, new mother, and I had a panic attack in the office. And it was I had actually had panic attacks before, didn't really know what they were, but this was, we had to call the ambulance and I got carted away in the middle of the office. It was a whole debacle. I was, I was supposed to be leading this big client meeting and it was terrible. And I 
as I was laying there in the hospital bed afterwards, when I, you know, my heart rate had come down and I was thinking, I remembered that roller skates comment. And I remembered, and I was like, God, it's still that way. And it's been 10 years and I'm still living like that. And when I was writing this book, I thought a lot about what it is like to live like that. And it is roller skates. And what I didn't put together at the time you know, speaks to what you were just saying that I didn't know it was the drinking. I thought it was just life, right? I thought life is messy and hard and, and it is, but I didn't pin so much of the chaos to drinking, even though that was it. Yeah. I used to always be flustered all the time, flustered. And I wasn't like actually late to things, but I always had this feeling that I was running late, that I was behind. In trouble. Yeah, in trouble. (laughs) There was always this like impending doom over me and I just couldn't chill. And I thought that was normal too. I thought that like part of being an adult you you just are stressed out. Like that was actually the first thing that I learned when I, right when I started drinking, I learned that when adults have stress, they drink and then they don't have stress anymore. So therefore all adults must have stress the way that I have stress. And yeah, just reading that, I was like, that is such a good analogy for life. Did you, when you had that panic attack, did you realize that it was your drinking or did you think it was like a you problem? It was the very end of my marriage. We actually had the conversation in the hospital room after that, where I looked at him and said, are we going to be okay? Meaning we're separating. We had just talked about it. Are we going to be okay? And that's what I thought it was. I thought it was that that was happening, not my drinking, you know, and I thought it was that and that my I was a new mom and I didn't really know, but I definitely didn't think it was the drinking, even though I had just come back from South by Southwest where I went for work and I went on a four day actual bender, like almost around the clock drinking. And the subsequent panic attacks that I had were always after a period of binge binging like that. And so were the ones before. I didn't put that together, though, until later. Yeah, I didn't either. I never had anxiety and then all of a sudden I had it and it couldn't be precious alcohol. No way. No, that makes it better. That's what we do to get rid of our anxiety. So something else that you said that really stuck with me and I think was like a major mindset shift is you said that it's not so much a self-control loser thing. It's about being in pain. And once I read that, now I hear people share their stories or they share what's going on. And that's how I'm seeing people now. And that's how I see like my alter ego drunk Jill as just like a person in a lot of pain. How did you come about that understanding? Well, it was communicated to me by various people over time. It's nothing that I came up with on my own. I was actually pushed that idea away quite a lot because I thought, that's just a cop out. <laughs> it, like, okay, so I, I, I drink and I make all I, I ruin people's lives and I blow up my marriage and I lie and I cheat and I steal and I, all because I'm in pain, like, give me a break, please. But it was gently suggested to me many times by other sober people. And even the first time someone said it to me was, was my now ex-husband in I, I described the scene actually in the book, but he 
said to me on many occasions, because my drinking was a thing for us, not always, but sometimes. And he didn't have addiction in his family. He didn't really have any reference point for what it might look like. He had much the same view as I did of what a a quote unquote alcoholic would look like. And it wasn't me. And so one time though, after I had had my daughter, our daughter, and she was newly, within the first three months, we moved, we had just moved to Denver, living in the basement with my dad. And drinking really changed when I became a mom. It, it's, it kind of stopped working and my anxiety ratcheted up and I started to drink more and it was just a mess. And one night after I'd had a bunch of wine and I don't know, I was just in this really terrible state. There was a lot going on and I was dragging a tip of a, a paper clip across my thigh, like just tearing into my flesh and the bedroom after my daughter had gone to sleep and he came in and was like, what is going on? You know, and he was scared and all of that took it, took it out of my hand. We went to bed and the next morning he said, you know, I don't think you drink because like you're an alcoholic or something. I think you drink to medicate, self-medicate. And I was like, self-medicate what? And he's like, all of this, (laughs) what do you mean? Like all of this pointing in the direction of my dad, you know, upstairs. And he was the first one that said that to me. And that was, you know, many years before I got sober. How did you I guess, accept that or believe that that was true versus like a choice or because you were saying like, it's a cop out or it's an excuse. And I totally see that. How did you accept that it's a pain thing and not and it's not you making an excuse? Yeah, again, it was a slow process of, I think a lot of it was in the in the process of trying to quit on my own volition through willpower and intelligence and strength and all these things that had gotten me through before and just not being able to. And in that time, because it was about a year where I was like trying and not not and I would put together some sober time, but I would I would go back in that time. I I also spent a lot of time sober. And so I started to feel everything that was underneath and I was in so much pain. And I just started to realize like, okay, like maybe there's something to this and starting to realized that I wasn't going to be able to beat the shit out of myself enough to get sober. Like it just wasn't going to work. So it was almost a practical thing. (laughs) Like, well, maybe this other thing could be true. But it was also just, you know, I started to write a lot in that time. And the things that started to come up were surprising. It was was a lot of pain coming out. Yeah. And we think that we can just beat the crap out of ourselves and shame ourselves. And like, if we're horrible enough, we'll be shocked out of our bad habit or whatever we're doing. And then we'll drink normally. We can punish ourselves into change somehow. It's what we're taught. And I mean, if you look at it, it's everywhere. I talk about this a lot in my book, but you know, our, our culture is very much there's, there's multiple factors, but, but one of the big ones that I think is really helpful to look at is we have so many choices now and we are we are told first that the individual is like all powerful that if you just want something bad enough you can make it happen and we have all these choices available to us all the time and women especially like look now you can have it all so any perceived failing with all given all of that is a failure of the individual so it must be me i'm not doing it right so of course we think that of course, we we think I just have to get more productive, more, you know, thin, more pretty, more 
education, more money, more whatever the missing theme. I need, I need another self-help book. I need another class. I need more therapy, whatever it is. The answer is out there. I just have to find it. And if I am not finding it and if it's not happening and if I'm failing, the failure's on me. How did you let that go that it was a you thing? That was that was so hard for me to let go of this like it's a choice. I chose to do this. I'm a weak person because we observe people that we think drink exactly like us and they can control themselves and then we're over here suffering. So it's really hard to understand why like they have this power of choice and taking care of themselves and like we can't. Well, first of all, I started to realize that what I was seeing in other people was just an image. It was just a fantasy that I was seeing. Other people often weren't drinking like I did. That's the re- first reality. Second reality is a lot of what I saw was like on in shows and movies and that wasn't real, but we I had ingested that for my whole life. I mean, I was I was just talking to someone else and I was saying every female character in of my age, which is I'm in my mid 40s for the past 30 years has been holding a glass of wine or a cocktail in her hands in every movie, every show. And that's what she's doing with her friends. And that's what she's doing with her partner. And that's what she's doing when out at work and, and with, you know, her coworkers. So we think that it looks like that, but it doesn't actually look, <laughs> look like that. Like if I, you know, I didn't really know how other people drink. And you also don't know, okay, other people might drink like you, but they're still in pain or they're having, they have problems, they have issues too. So some of it was just like pulling my blinders off a little bit and realizing like, I was very committed to this story. That was just a story. And this, the other parts were like, I don't know, I think getting sober and there's so many layers to it. And some of it, it's not, you can have all the information, but it's so experiential. And so you have to, once I started to experience a little bit of sobriety, when I started to experience things that that went against what I had believed, like, oh, I am, I can be funny when I'm sober, or I can have sex sober. And it's amazing, even if it's sort of awkward at first, or my sober mind at work is, um, is holy shit. You know, like, I, I love my clear mind. And so when you start to experience these things, it, shifts that perception that you didn't even know you don't know the sort of scripts you're running until you start to question them you're like oh that's just that's not the truth that's just a story that I had but what if that story isn't true and then you kind of have an experience that proves it to not be true and you're like wow okay well what else is true so what if it it wasn't my fault and what I do say like in the book is it's not your fault a lot of all these things are not your fault but it also is your responsibility so it's not just that it's not your fault. That's not enough. That's not true. <laughs> it, there's many things that are not your fault. And pretending like they are and holding yourself over that cross forever, will, you will never get there. And so it is your responsibility, too. Only you, only you can do it also. So I wanted to talk about personal responsibility. So thank you for the segue. Oh, sure. You're <laughs> welcome. I'm a built-in segue machine. You have a lot of podcasting experience. <laughs> no, I read your questions, but I wasn't purposely going there. <laughs> How can we understand like what personal responsibility even means? Like a lot of us 
we have so much pain and we've had so much bad stuff and we feel like we are literally the worst person that's ever existed on the planet. And then we hear like, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility. And like, what is that? Like, how did you start taking responsibility? I guess. Yeah, I spent a lot of time on that chapter. It's chapter two. It it was traumatizing to write it. (laughs) It took me like over four months because it is hard to communicate what responsibility is and what it isn't. It's also such a loaded topic in our culture. So the way I look at it is that we are responsible for our, we are largely, not totally, but we are largely responsible for our experience, not for what happens to us. What I mean by experience, and there's, there's caveats here because we can't, especially, you know, if you're a kid, you can't be really responsible for your experience. And if you're in, you know, an abusive situation or you have a lot of trauma, you can't always be responsible for your experience, how, how you're perceiving things, how things are coming at you because your brain plays tricks. However, there is some element of choice and control that we always have, even if it's tiny. And it's usually about how we respond to things versus what happens to us, right? So it's in that, that space that Viktor Frankl said, or we, who knows who actually said this, but it's that space between stimulus and response where we have a choice. It doesn't feel like we have a choice for a long time. We don't realize we have a choice for a long time, but we start, we can start to build space for that and in that and, and choose to react in different ways. So I can't be responsible for my childhood, for my parents, for You know, people can't be responsible for the environment where they grow up, their socioeconomic background. There are many, many factors that could contribute to them experiencing oppression, racism, homophobia, all of those things. And at some point, we have to decide, and I think it is a decision, that we are going to do what we can to create the experience we need or want. And again, that might be very limited, but there is some element in there that you can choose. And for me, I didn't really have like that part wasn't that hard for me. I shouldn't say it wasn't that hard for me. I thought I was taking responsibility in a lot of ways. But what I was really doing was I just had a very clear blame story (laughs) about other people, but also myself. Like I talk a lot about blame in the book and how it's this very futile sort of space to be in because there's no way you can move forward. So if you are in a blame story, whether you're blaming yourself or other people or circumstances, you're, you can't take responsibility there in that space. So that was learning that, practicing that was helpful. I had to, th- what I say is one of the biggest sort of practices of responsibility in the book is asking for help. Like it's very counterintuitive because we think, okay, I'm taking personal responsibility. It's me. But really, especially in sobriety, the biggest act of responsibility is saying like, I can't, I don't know how to do this. I need help. That's a huge one. That was, that was a big piece um, for me. And then really just becoming conscious of myself, my patterns, my thoughts and how they were kind of creating my, my world what I contributed to in the relationships that I was in or at work or in my home or with my daughter, whatever, that was contributing to the difficulties. And there was always something, even with long standing patterns, say with my parents, how was I still keeping that dysfunction alive with them? 
well, I won't let them off the hook or I won't forgive them or I won't stop telling myself this story about who they are and, you know, who I have to be. And so a lot of it is just pattern recognition of your own patterns in relationships. A huge part of it is, oh, is honesty, like a willingness to start telling the truth, even though it, for me, that was probably the biggest aspect of taking responsibility. I had a, as a big people pleaser, I had a very long standing, standing pattern of people pleasing and saying yes when I meant no and saying no when I meant yes and doing whatever I needed to do to sort of keep the peace and all that. And I thought that was the good and right thing to do. I'm doing that because I'm so nice and I'm so giving and I'm so, you know, generous. And a lot of women take that role on and not realizing that, that I was just being dishonest. I wasn't just, I wasn't telling the truth. And it came from a good place inside of me, but I, but it, at the end of the day, it was dishonest. And that's where my responsibility was. Like it was on me to create those boundaries. It was on me to, to actually say the hard thing. I would rail on, you know, on other people for being so toxic and so shitty and so mean and so abusive and so demanding and, you know, walking all over me. And it's like, well, your part in it is that you're not telling the truth. So those are some of the things. There's there's so much there. Yeah. Do you remember that trend on Instagram that was going around and it was like, am I the drama? <laughs> no, because I don't go on TikTok. <laughs> or was it Instagram or TikTok? Yeah, Instagram Reels. I don't do TikTok either. Oh, no, I didn't catch that one. But that's funny. But I that was my realization. I So I got sober and then I had several different blame stories of why it was everybody else's fault that I had this problem. If only, you know, my husband didn't suck so much. And, and then like over time, I realized like he actually wasn't that bad. <laughs> and like, I, start, I started he realizing wasn't the, one the doing truth. It. Yeah, it actually wasn't 100% him that caused the problems for us. Um, but then as I worked through the blame story and came out the other side of it, I realized like I was the drama in a lot of situations. Like I looked back on on situations that I had with coworkers in previous jobs and like friends or relationships. And I realized like I contributed a lot of drama in the way that I reacted to things and the way that I interpreted things. And first that feels really bad. Yeah. <laughs> when you feel that way. News. Yeah. And then eventually you work through it. But did you have that realization that like you, like you were toxic or you were, you were contributing chaos or drama or any of that? For sure. I, I mean, a lot of what I just described was that like, me pinning it on this other person for being whatever, fill in the blank, demanding, rude, you know, ungrateful, ungrateful is a big one. Yeah. Where, you know, I was, I had my part. I had a big part in, in all of that. So yes, I had that. I say like the, the responsibility always feels like this really shitty news. Like, oh, I'm <laughs> creating this in my life. But then it's also the best news because it's like, oh, okay, well, then I, I can find my way out of it too, or at least do my part. So responsibility doesn't mean that you're going to be able to control everything. It doesn't mean that you well that things are just going to start going your way and you're going to get everything you want. But it does mean that you have some degree of control over your experience uh, and how you what you do with what comes at you, right? 
that's really what it is. And it still, it still shows up. I still, I still, although much less will crave drama and chaos. Like, oh, I can spend time, you know, ruminating about this person and all the ways that they're shitty to me and how dare they (laughs) fuck them and what's going on there. And, And it's very enticing. It's very intoxicating. My friend Veronica Valley says like resent, resentments are seductive. They are very seductive. And so, and blame stories are very seductive because you can just stay in that and feel so righteous in your story. And look, a lot of times you're not wrong. Shitty things happen and all kinds of, of, of terrible things happen every day to people that don't deserve them. And it's not fair, like life isn't fair and uh, our, our culture isn't fair. And, and, uh, and all of that is true. It's never saying that that's not true. Like that's where personal responsibility goes wrong, right? Where it blames the person for everything. If you're not having the experience you want and you're not achieving the success of certain people and you're not able to, to, to like live your best life every day and have, the, the, have it all, then you're doing something wrong. No, that's not, that's not it. But are you doing what you can with what you have? Yeah. And it, when you have resentments or blame stories or whatever, you're absolving yourself from needing to take any action. That's right. Or change your behavior in any way. Mm-hmm. So then you don't have to do the work because everyone else is the problem. Everyone else needs to change. If they would to <laughs> change, then I, I could do all these things. It would be fine. Yeah, well, it's, it's humiliating and humbling. And it's also hard. It's hard to look at yourself honestly and say, yeah, that's not so great. Yeah. And you were talking about pattern recognition. And that was so key for me. Once I identified, and it feels like, ooh, like I, like I was saying before, like I was the drama, like I was the chaos person. I'm the toxic person in these situations. Like no one wants to feel that way. But once you identify the patterns, you have all the power because you don't have to continue the pattern anymore. You've recognized it and now you can change it. So I think it, it gives us all of the power back. It does always. And it's it's you, you can't you can maybe get sober without taking responsibility, but you can't be free and get and get all the good stuff in life, whether you're sober or not, without, without that. Yeah, freedom. Freedom. What was your favorite part of writing the book? You said the personal responsibility <laughs> chapter was the hardest. It almost what was killed your, me. Yeah, but it's done. You never have to do it again. <laughs> never, never will do it again. <laughs> but what was your favorite part? Mm, the last two chapters were really sweet. I really enjoyed writing them. They felt like I had finally... They felt like my voice and it didn't I didn't have to work as hard as I did for the other for the other 80 percent of the book. This was a very hard book for me to write. It was challenging in uh, a lot of ways. I, I have, you know, I didn't I, don't, I didn't necessarily feel comfortable writing something this prescriptive. I had to allow myself to just sit in that seat and just do it <laughs> and uh, take some risks by making statements that people may agree or disagree with. And yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't as comfortable with that, but I did love the last two chapters. I loved writing them. They were very sweet. And I like, I don't know if other authors feel this way. I think it's varied, but I really like all the other aspects of 
publishing a book. There's writing the book and that's one thing. And then publishing it is something else. I like the the cover design and I like the marketing part of it. I think it's really fun. Uh, the other part that was really cool about writing this book was I got to inco- include so many stories of other people, many of the people who are on the team at the at TLC. And that was really great. Yeah, I saw your stories today with all the covers that didn't make the cut. And I was like, ah, that's so cool. They're they're really pretty though. There were great ones. They just weren't right. They just weren't right. Yeah. I I think we went through 60 some different versions. It's Oh my God, 60? Something like that. Yeah. Wow. I didn't see all of those 60. I I saw, you know, 40 or 50 of them, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's a wild process that go. And I think that's pretty typical. I don't think this was not like an exception. What does push off from here mean to you? Yeah. Well, to be fair, this is something that someone said to me very kind of casually in the first meeting I ever went to the first 12 step meeting I ever went to back in 2013. I was a shaking, scared, terrified mess, just like (laughs) shellacked with shame (laughs) sitting in there. It was this hot July day. It was 12 people's like right by Boston common non-air conditioned room. And I was just, I was a mess. And, um, I blurted out some things in the meeting and, you know, I, I just wanted to like run out of there and, and hopefully never come back. And this woman came up to me afterwards. I had shared some things about my daughter because that was an incident involving my daughter, which I read about a lot in the, my first book. So it's not a secret. It's just, it was the impetus for me to finally go to a meeting. And, um, she came up to me and said, look, I, I'm a mom and I get it. And I know what you're going through, but you, you have to know you can push off from here. You can leave all of that behind. And I never saw her again. But I, I never forgot those words. And I started to, I thought of them so often over the years. I said them often to other people who came my way. And to me, they mean a couple things. There, it's, a, it's a recognition that you can start a new chapter of your life right now, right here. And that it's okay if you set aside for a time all the things that you that have happened in the past. Like you can push off from here. You can set all that aside for a while. You probably can't look at it anyway because it will just take you down and you can move forward, like focus on moving forward. It communicated that I wasn't the worst person in the world. And like, I deserved to push off from here. Like it was okay. You can do that. Cause I think so many of us are carrying just this like 10 ton backpack of shame. And so to me, it was like, set down, set that down and push off. And then it also, though, communicates like you, you actually have to push off. This is like both feet in, like at some point you have to depart from, it always brings up images of water and like pushing off from a pool or boat setting out from a harbor. You have, you can't like keep one foot, one pinky toe dangling to the side of the pool or like the boat kind of still attached to the harbor. You got to push off. And that was a big, important thing too. Um, And a lot of it was just like, you get to keep coming back, you get to like, it's a it's a process, you know, I didn't quit drinking the first time I tried most people don't. So you so what you do something that you're not, you know, super proud of, or you, you stumble a little or whatever, it's okay, push off from here. And also in sobriety, you have a bad moment, (laughs) you blow up at work, you blow up on your 
your spouse, you have, you know, a shitty conversation with your friend, you don't react the way that you want to. Okay. Okay. Push off from here. That's beautiful. Thanks. It's hard to do that though, because we feel that we like don't deserve anything good because of all these shameful memories. And I'm not a parent, but I can imagine like any shameful drinking memory, like related to your kids has to be so intense and and hard to, you're not like letting, you're not dropping it forever, but you're not letting it consume you. But when it's your kids, like I can imagine it's just so hard. Yeah. It's the, it's the most intense. They were the most intense memories for me. They still are if they come up, although they do much less frequently, but that's what is meant by like, you have to set this aside for right now. You will deal with it over time and when you can, and you will, you're not absolving yourself from, from that responsibility, but you can't carry it all and push off. You can't do it. And so it is hard, but that's grace also. It's just like, you will be able to do it when you can do it. You will be able to process the shame when you can. And like, look, if people are listening and they're like, yeah, sure. (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure that's true for you, but there's no way I could outlive this memory, all these memories that I feel in my body so acutely. Like I just can't stand even look at myself in the mirror. Well, I was this, I felt the same and I never thought I would be past that part. And yet I am, and we do. And I, I can look, think of hundreds and thousands of other examples of other people with all kinds of different backgrounds who have as well. And that's, that's the gift that we get. What do you do when those memories pop back up? I remind myself that that's not where I live anymore, that that's not what's happening. It hasn't, in fact, happened for a long time. And I just, I get really grateful that it's not happening anymore and that it happened honestly because it got me here and I don't say that in like a trite way or like some you know spiritual bypassing way it's like no that actually is why did it happen because it did and and I don't know that I would would have gotten sober if I wouldn't have left my daughter alone in a hotel room for a whole night like I hate that that happened I regret it but I don't feel shame about it anymore. Very different things. Like it's okay to regret things. It's, it's normal to regret things, but shame, shame ruins you. It just, it just ruins you. Yeah. It's hard to, it feels like you're never going to come out the other side of it. And when you're so used to, like you said, self-medicating and you can drink and push these horrible things away. We'll think, we'll think about this. Hopefully never. Hopefully never. And, and, it, and that doesn't work, right? It doesn't. Right. So I think oftentimes the anticipation of what it will feel like if we look straight on at those things is is worse than actually looking at them. And look, the other thing that we haven't really talked about, but that it that is 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 true. And it's not just like my hunch. It's scientifically research driven proof that we can't survive. We can't uh, overcome shame without other people and without empathy. That's all of Brene Brown's work is all based on that. We just can't. And so we, she has this quote that I I quote in the book that shame needs three things to grow exponentially uh, in your life and in silence, secrecy and judgment. And so when we're quiet about things, shame grows. When we keep secrets, shame grows. When we judge ourselves or other people judge us, shame grows. So we have to do, we have to put ourselves in community. We have to 
start opening our mouth and talking about what's going on with us. We have to tell the truth. We have to do all those hard things because otherwise the shame will just, it just doesn't go away on its own. Time does, does a lot, but it, but it doesn't cure it. What has been the best part of sobriety for you? Like if I know there's so many good parts, but if you had to say like your number one or, or like top two, like what are the things that are just like the best? The first two things that come to mind, the list is genuinely endless, but the first two things that come to mind are my daughter, my the relationship I have with my daughter and just like being present for my daughter growing up. You know, I got sober when she was five and I'm very lucky that it, she was young. A lot of people, that's not the case. And um, I feel very fortunate for that. And it's just been, it's a gift. And she's 14 now, going to be 14 next week. So I've been sober for a lot longer than I drank. And I'm, it's just amazing to, I love, she's an amazing person. It's great to, I'm, I'm very, I, I adore her. And then, and I love that she is safe with me. That's the coolest part about it. I'm not the perfect mom at all, but I know that she's safe with me and I know that she knows that. So that's one of them. And then the second part I, I, for me is the work that I ended up doing because I got sober. I wanted to become an author, a writer so bad. And I, it never would have happened if I kept drinking. And I get to do work that I really just pinch myself all the time that, that that's what I get to do. And I feel a tremendous privilege in that. Do you have another book? In the future? Yes. The <laughs> book deal I signed for this one was a two book deal. So it's already in the books. Yeah, it's about it's going to be a memoir. So going back to the sort of we are the luckiest style of books, that was my first book. And it's about love addiction and all the relationships stuff that uh, I realized was really at the center of all of it. That is cool. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm yeah, I, it's one of those things. There's really not much about that. No, out there. And it's going to be very hard to write. I'm sure we will talk again at the end of it. <laughs> I will be like a different person after writing it because it. I feel like it's going to be um, pretty intense, but I'm yeah, I'm already thinking like of all the podcasts that I know that are on that topic, like just in my network, there are two that talk about betrayal trauma, like sex addiction, those kinds of topics. And I'm like, oh, I can't, can't, can't wait to tell I love them. it. You're already networking for me. I am, yeah. <laughs> I love So that. what is next for you besides this book? Is there anything else? Well, the Luckiest Club is, this, is a community that I started back in 2020. It's a sobriety support community. And I'm very, I founded that and still super involved with that. So that's something I'm continuing to do. and. The rest is just living, you know, living my life. And I'll be nine years sober this year. So it gets better and better. Getting married next year, that's coming. That's so. something in the future. That's something in the future. <laughs> yeah. Something very exciting. So yeah, those are the plans that I know of. So besides getting push off from here and reading the crap out of it, where can we, <laughs> where can we read with the you? crap out of it? Just yes. obsessively read it on a Saturday, <laughs> like all night long, instead of <laughs> instead of drinking or worrying about missing the social thing, just obsessively read push up from here. Yes, I like that instruction. <laughs> um, were you saying where else could we 
What yeah, where you? can we connect with oh, you? Oh yeah, it's my website is my name. It's lauramccowan.com. And um, the really only the only place I hang out on social is Instagram. So it's Laura underscore McCowan. I'll have all that in the show notes. And thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you're super busy. So no, I'm so fun. happy to talk to you and you're a great, a great host. Thank you. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.